The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Tom Paxton is one of the most enduring and important voices in American music. But also, beyond the songs, have found their way to other countries and have been sung in different languages. His work has been recorded by a great number of artists. Everyone from Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Pete Seeger, the group Peter, Paul, and Mary. I could keep on going. So, Mr. Paxton, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome, and it, it's Tom to you, please. <laughs> well, thank you. I noticed that we, we left out Tiny Tim. He recorded one of my songs as well. Oh, really? What did he record? He recorded I Can't Help But Wonder Where I'm Bound, which was also recorded by Johnny Cash and uh, Dion uh, DiMucci. And I'm forgetting some, but it's been recorded by quite a few different artists. Yeah, it's, it's just an amazing number of artists who your songs have resonated with. Well, I feel incredibly lucky that way and I, I think a lot of it has to do with that I knew a lot of artists I was friends with uh, with Bob Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary and Judy Collins so I mean they were among the earliest to record my stuff the Chad Mitchell trio as well and I think that's how some of the uh, other artists uh, heard them through recordings by my friends I'm going to start off kind of light. <laughs> okay. How important is it for an artist to stand up for what they believe in? That's a wonderful question. I think it's a, it's a decision that every artist makes at one time or another, usually fairly early on, I should think. If the artist is determined on the greatest possible success, then they probably uh, listen to uh, to management telling them that they shouldn't get involved in anything controversial because every time they sing a song to a friend, they'll make an enemy. So lots of, lots of artists decide to stay clear of any kind of politics. Other artists take the position that citizenship involves responsibility and that uh, the artist should stand for what he or she believes. And uh, we have artists like Pablo Picasso and, and uh, Emile Zola as, as examples. And then in our own country, we have Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Paul Robeson. And in our own time, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, and you have John Mellencamp, you know, who was extremely popular and yet still uh, takes positions, and so does uh, Bruce Springsteen. So I'm uh, obviously of that school of thought, that we're in the entertainment business, but entertainment does not mean simple diversion. Entertainment means engagement, as far as we're concerned engagement with the world around us. Shakespeare uh, told us to hold a mirror up to nature, show it as it is, and take an artistic stand, take a human stand. 
on the note of what you just said, take a human stand, what have you seen in your own life in terms of music's ability to change the heart of a man? Well, you know, I was just talking to my oldest grandson, Christopher, last night. He, he's up in, uh, in Cambridge, Mass., a recent graduate from Cornell, and he's working up there. And I asked him if he had kept up his music, and he said, no, he hadn't. So I uh, read him the riot act about that. I said, you know, if he needs a guitar, I'll buy him one. But he needs to he needs to have music because I firmly believe, you know, music music is vibration. Music is math, and it's well known that students um, who have music in their curriculum tend to do better in all their subjects than students who do not have music in their curriculum. And that I think the human being needs music to keep, keep it healthy. Absolutely. I want you to kind of paint a picture with words. If you could tell us what a typical day was like for you when you were growing up. When I was growing up? Yeah. Oh, it was like everybody else in my my little town of Bristow, Oklahoma. I went to school and I was uh, active in all kinds of things at school. I was um, in all the plays. I loved acting, and uh, I played trumpet in a high school band, and I played football. So uh, you couldn't be any more typical than than my upbringing was. I didn't have a father after uh, my 11th year. My father died an early death. And so I, I grew up with a sister and a mother. And I went to the University of Oklahoma. And I was a drama student there. Loved it. I had a great four years. And uh, then I, I got into folk music and uh, remained there. So it was extremely typical upbringing. This experience in drama school, how did that help you in terms of your music career? Well, I think it helped It helped me to find myself. It helped me to, 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 to act in. So I was in 40 plays during my time there, anything from walk-ons to leads. And I met a lot of people who were artistic and who uh, went on to pursue artistic careers. And and this was very, very different from a small-town Oklahoma life. Uh, this We talked about the theater world in, in London and New York, and, and uh, we talked about films a lot. And it was just a, a new perspective for me. It, it didn't really change me. It just helped me to find out where my appetite lay. All the while I was at the university in the drama school, I was learning folk songs. I was mad about folk songs. I had loved folk songs since I didn't even know you called them that. Uh, like so many others, I heard Burl Ives singing uh, Blue Tail Fly and Goober Peas and songs like that. And it just suited my soul somehow. So all the while I was at OU, I was uh, 
learning folk songs really as a hobby. And uh, while I was there, I heard uh, the Weavers at Carnegie Hall. They recorded that album live at Carnegie Hall, Christmas Eve, 1956. And when I heard it, it didn't change my life so much as focus it. Hearing that album, I went from someone who loved folk songs and became someone who simply had to do it. Other than the Weavers, can you tell us about some of the artists that had the biggest impression on you? Well, that would be Pete Seeger. Uh, of course, he was the leading voice in the Weavers, but Pete Seeger, Pete Seeger's repertoire went all the way from uh, I've been working on the railroad to to Wim Away to uh, songs from the Spanish Civil War. And, uh, of course, We Shall Overcome. So it, it was hearing it was hearing repertoire like the Weavers and Peach that began began to show me that this was an international kind of music, that it was music that ordinary people had made forever in their own time, uh, 99 point something percent of folk singers before the 20th century were people who wrote and made up these songs while they were doing something else for a living. The first songs that you wrote, what was the inspiration? What was the the <laughs> catalyst that was driving that? <laughs> I'll tell you what, the first song I wrote was easily one of the worst songs in the English language. <laughs> I, I'd put it up against just about anything. It was an imitation Elizabethan murder ballad <laughs> called Robert. And, and I mean, it was as bad as it sounds to you right now. It was phony as a $3 bill, and it was... Luckily, I didn't know how bad it was. I was so thrilled that I had actually written words and music, and uh, I created a, a song. I was thrilled to death. And of course, my friends told me they loved it. And, and of course, you, you really can't ever rely on your friends, unless they're professionals too, to give you a good reaction to a song. So I kept writing, and I kept writing pretty much as badly as that first one, because like anything worth doing, it takes a while before you start to do it well. And it takes a lot of uh, stubbornness, determination, uh, naivete. You know, I didn't know I was bad, so I kept writing. And I got good, finally. About the 50th song I wrote, I've never counted, but about the 50th song I wrote was a song called The Marvelous Toy, which is still around, which is still sung and was a hit for the Ted Mitchell Trio. And after that, I kind of established a rhythm of maybe one song in 10 would be performable. Uh, it's pretty much that way now. I mean, I write a lot of terrible songs, and you just never hear them. <laughs> when you first began performing these songs in front of an audience, what was that like emotionally? It was as close to relaxing fear and panic <laughs> as you can come. The first time I sang three songs in public was in the little theater in Oklahoma where I had been on that stage and many, many plays. Uh, 
so you would think I would be at home, but it's very different going out with a costume and makeup and fellow cast members and a script and all that to standing out there with just a guitar and, and your shaking voice uh, and trying, I mean, the nerve of the nerve of one to get up there and assume that, that he or she is going to entertain people. So my knees were literally shaking and I somehow got through those three songs and the next time I performed, it was just as bad, but maybe not quite that bad. And, and I kept doing it and the fear went away. Finally. I'm hoping you can tell us your memories of the first time you went to the village. What did you see? What did it feel like? Oh, sure. Sure. I I was sent from, um, basic training in the army in, in Fort Riley, Kansas to the New York area. And on my first, uh, my first weekend pass, I was into the village like a shot and I was walking all around Bleecker and McDougal streets and seeing all the coffee houses, the gaslight was there. And so I went in the gaslight and it was just, it was dark, you know, and, and, and the girls were exotic. They had, on. Um, you know, black tights and in the heavy black makeup on their eyes. And I, I thought they were the sexiest thing in the world. And, and I sat there and, and, uh, uh, there were two poets reciting John Brent and Hugh Romney and a folk singer named Jimmy Gavin. And he sang the rising of the moon. And I mean, I, I was in heaven. I was in heaven. This is what I had yearned for this kind of atmosphere where the music was the kind of music that I loved. And I, you know, had learned these songs almost by osmosis. I was so happy to be there. And when I got out of the army, I stayed and went to work at the gaslight and the gaslight was really my home for a couple of years. And then I began playing out in other cities and, and uh, gradually expanding the, the territory, but the gaslight was, was my spiritual home. And it was for many of us. I mean, that's where Dylan really, Dylan never worked at the gaslight, but he sang there all the time. Phil sang there with me, Eric Anderson worked with us and Buffy St. Marie. And then Bill Cosby came in 1962. And that was his first gig was at the gaslight. And Peter, Paul and Mary sang their first songs there. Ian and Sylvia sang their first songs in the States at the Gaslight one night. So it was, it was home for me. I mean, I was in my element. I was working alongside of people like Dylan and, and, and Phil Oaks and Dave Van Ronk and, and hearing songs, writing songs, learning songs to sing, singing with other people. It was, um, a second university education for me. I watched that documentary film made by the the documentarian Jim Brown about... Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it, but I can't remember if it was you or one of the other artists that said, you know, a lot of these names, like Phil Oaks, Eric Anderson, of course, Bob Dylan, in as much as those were great artists, there were so many other artists that if if their name was mentioned, you wouldn't know 
who they were, but they were so great. And oh, I'm hoping you can tell us maybe of an artist that maybe our listeners wouldn't know, but is very worthy of their attention. Oh, I think I can. I think I can tell you lots. The first name that springs to mind, and possibly they do know him, was Fred Neal. Fred had an incredible bass baritone voice with, you know, a couple octaves range. He played real good guitar, kind of sang in a, a really kind of a blues sort of way. And he wrote Everybody's Talking. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word. This, you know, that one from uh, Midnight Cowboy. Oh, yeah. It was incredibly sung by Harry Nilsson. And Fred, Fred had it all, but he didn't really want it. What he really wanted was to sit down at Coconut Grove and, and get high and, and sail a little sunfish. I mean, he would just did not want the work of a professional performer. He, he just had this great, great talent and no drive. Hmm. Well, one of the artists that we mentioned at the top of the, of the interview that has recorded a, a song of yours, and the world knows his music, why do you think that Bob Dylan's music has just permeated the globe? Well, because it's great. Yeah. It's, it's great. I mean, they're just song after song after song that you, you listen to and say, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm hearing this. <laughs> I really like this song. So many, many songs like that. When you first met Bob Dylan, what was your initial impression of him? Well, there we were one Monday night at Gertie's Folk City. On, on, on uh, Monday nights, we had uh, uh, Nanny, which we now call op Open Mic. And uh, the rules were, were stringent. You sang three songs, and that was it. There were no encores, and you did not sing a fourth song if you ever wanted to sing there again. And so one night, Dave Van Rock and I, I, I suppose we had already sung our songs. We were sitting having a beer, and this scrawny kid with a black corduroy cap on and a harmonica rack got up and sang three Woody Guthrie songs. And both Dave and I said, wow, who's this guy? Let's get to know him. So we, you know, we, we got, a, got a hold of him and bought him a beer and, and uh, started talking and uh, that was the first time I heard Bob. I, I wish I could tell you what the three Woody Guthrie songs were, but I, I can't remember that. I'm curious to know what you thought of Mr. Dillon's interpretation of your song, Annie's Going to Sing Her Song. <laughs> well, this is pretty funny. I'll tell you that <laughs> it must have been 1970 or so that Bob and I were sitting in the bar next to the... Uh, bitter end on, on uh, Bleecker Street and uh, he said you know that song of yours uh, Annie's going to sing her song so I like that song so I'm going to cut that song and that was in 1970 and about three or four years ago we finally cut it <laughs> and the thing is that he got uh, the, the lyric is 
is actually exactly what I wrote, and there is not a note of the melody that is mine. It's he changed the. You could tell that what he was doing. It, it, it's one of these basement basement tapes or uh, or uh, one of the bootleg tapes that he did himself, and then he was just recording a lot of songs uh, one after the other, and he'd have the lyric on the stand there and and uh, uh, and start singing. And so his tune is different than my tune. But I, I actually, I like very much what he did. He understood, he understood the song, and and the melody, his melody, in no way undercuts the meaning of the song. It's a, it's a fine melody. I prefer mine, but uh, I don't mind his at all. And I'm, I was, I was frankly tickled that he did it. As mentioned earlier, there have been so many iconic artists who have recorded a Tom Paxton song. Who has been your favorite, or what has been your favorite version of one of your songs? <laughs> oh, that's such a trap question. I mean, <laughs> uh, whoever I name, everyone else is going to say, what, what? Um, well, there have been, been some really beautiful versions. But I think that John Denver recorded... Uh, Goose Garden was this very beautifully. But John did a beautiful version of, of uh, but he also, everything of mine that he sang, he sang extremely well. I thought the Chad Mitchell Trio did a beautiful version of Can't Help But Wonder Where I'm Bound. And uh, that was Joe Frazier singing the lead that day. Oh, it's so hard. Pete Seeger singing What Did You Learn in School Today? He got it. And then that he sang my song, uh, "The Willing Conscript," and I was I was thrilled that that was included in the uh, the uh, Ken Burns' War in Vietnam series. He he got it so perfectly. Oh dear! It's, I mean, when I get started, I start thinking of one recording after another, and somebody, Neil Diamond, did the last thing on my mind, very beautifully. I thought you were going to mention. <laughs> I thought you were going to mention the Harry Belafonte cut. Of I think he did the last thing on my mind. You know I've never heard it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've I've never heard his recording of it. I bet it's beautiful. Do you think Harry Belafonte is underrated as a singer? Oh, I loved his singing. Uh, it, uh, do you think he was underrated? I thought that he got huge acclaim for his singing. I guess what I mean is a lot of times when people mention great American singers like Sinatra, uh-huh. Perry Como, yeah. uh, Nat King Cole, I feel like Harry Belafonte is sometimes left off of that list, and he should be on that list. Well, I agree with you in both respects that he is that he is left off the list of the great singers. I would I would not include Perry Como. Uh, as much as I enjoyed him, there were lots of singers as good as Perry Como. But yeah, Tony Bennett. Now there's a great American singer. Yeah, I I like Perry Como very much, but I mean he doesn't really pop up in my mind when I think of great 
great singers. There have been a number of times on this show where I've gotten the chance to ask somebody else about you. It was just the uh, other day we had John Gor- John Gorka on. Oh, now there's a great, yeah, there's a great singer. Oh, yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I asked him, I said, one of the wonderful things about it, being a touring artist is you get to meet people that you normally, you wouldn't have gotten a chance to meet. And he said that one of the highlights was meeting you. Wow. So I would ask you, what do you want people to say about you when you're not around? Oh, boy. Look at the head of hair on that guy. <laughs> uh, what do I want them to say? I just want them to say, oh, good old Tom. Love to, love to spend time with him. Musically, I, I would I would love to hear them say that they that they liked they liked my work they liked my songs. That's the kind of thing that any any creative person would hope to hear his colleagues say about him. I know there's so many so many artists that I've known and respect and and I'm always the richer for knowing them. I know that. What is it like after all these years? still out there touring? Well, I'll tell you the truth. It's terrific. I'm enjoying it more now than I have for quite some time. I think it began with uh, the two or so years that I spent off and on touring with Janice Ian. We did um, quite a few shows together, and I enjoyed every one of them so much. We, we stayed on stage together most of the time and sang with one another and it was just such fun and now i'm touring with uh the don ones uh, don henry and john vesner from nashville and we're writing songs together singing together a lot it's really uh, at this point more of a trio than it is me with sidemen i think i think I'm having such fun touring with them that uh, uh, I want to keep doing it. So what is coming up on the horizons? Well, same old, same old, except it's not that way to me. Uh, I'm leaving um, on the 3rd of April for uh, Copenhagen. I'll meet the guys there and we'll, we'll play in Copenhagen and then, uh, Oslo, Norway, and then come down to the UK and tour there for about, I think it's about 12, 12 concerts. And that that's on the immediate horizon. And then this summer playing uh, uh, several festivals and all of them with, with the Don Juans. I just, I told my agent, you know, just book me with the DJs and, and, uh, and never mind the solo stuff. Hmm. The experience of traveling around the world, interacting with all different types, what has that taught you about people? It's taught me what a huge world it is and what a little world it is. In my mind, I can go in a flash to uh, Port Ferry, Australia, which is on the, the, the southern coast of Australia. There's nothing between 
between you and Antarctica, but water. And to be in different different countries with different languages, and yet people people are are great everywhere, and they people love music, and they like American music. You'll have to ask them why. I just make my music, and they like it. That'll do for me. But to have been in so many parts of the world, I mean, the cliche is that travel is broadening, and boy, is it ever. You just start to think in a larger, with a larger perspective, that's all, because you've seen, you've seen other corners of, uh, of this planet, and, and they matter. What is the best thing about being Tom Paxton? <laughs> Having my family. Having my family. You know, I lost my wife four years ago, but I still have my two daughters, Jennifer and Kate, and my my grandsons, and uh, I absolutely adore them. And uh, Jennifer and her family live uh, close by, so we have uh, almost a weekly gathering here at my house on Sunday nights. We have pizza and, and uh, watch uh, whatever the sport is on. And uh, we have a good time together. So the best part of being Tom Paxton is is having my family. Communication is something that has just changed so much. You could call a radio show in San Francisco, and it might be heard by those people in San Francisco. But now it seems like you could say something, it ends up on the Internet. You just never know who you're reaching. I know. And you know what knocks me out? I love classical music and I love Radio 3 in England. BBC Radio 3 is all classical music. And I can roll out of bed now and switch right on to Radio 3 on the internet. You know? And it, it boggles my mind that I, that I can do that. That, that, that. And you're right about it. You say something online and boy, it just there's no telling where it's going. So for anyone who is listening, whether they're in England, down here in the south, up in the north, out west, what would you say to anyone who is tuned in, totally open-ended? I would say, hello, brother, hello, sister. Let's make some music. (laughs) That's great. Well, my last question, who is Tom Paxton? How would you define him? Tom Paxton is uh, a kid from a small town in Oklahoma who spent his first 10 years in a huge city named Chicago, who grew up in a very typical Midwestern way, fell in love with a particular kind of music and decided to spend his life making that kind of music and did so happily ever after. For all the listeners out there, I want to encourage them, if they want more information, they can always visit TomPaxton.com. That's his home on the web, T-O-M-P-A-X-T-O-N. And Tom, thank you very much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. 
All right. Till next time. Thanks a lot, man. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.